first two verses this morning. Uh, it's okay if you don't have a Bible. The, the passage is in your uh, little Seasons Weekly, and it'll also be on the screen in, in uh, just a couple minutes. My name's Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, and we're happy to have all of you here with us this morning. Uh, when I was uh, first starting in uh, ministry, I was in youth ministry for about 13 years. And uh, you deal with a lot of different things in, in youth ministry, but uh, once, you, uh, once you get into um, ministry to adults, the problems and the opportunities for challenges get a little bit bigger and more complex. I graduated from seminary and I was 34, uh, got ordained, and about one year after my ordination where I was serving as an assistant pastor in a, in a large church, but I had a small area of responsibility, so it was a good starting place for me, uh, we had a major crisis at that particular church. The, the lead pastor, who was only a year older than me, uh, took his own life. He committed suicide. So here I am, a guy one year out of seminary uh, with a lot of book knowledge, a lot of head knowledge. And I have people coming into, into my office by droves, and all the other pastors of the church did too, that were just absolutely devastated by this experience with questions like, well, if a pastor commits suicide, then why shouldn't I? <laughs> and I'm going, okay, now where's the answer to that question? They didn't give me that notebook at seminary. How do you, how do you figure that out? You see discipleship or following Christ is not just about what you know, but it's how to apply the truth to your life. And Romans turns a corner. When, when we get into chapter 12, we finally arrived at chapter 12. And this morning, we're, we're going to move uh, from the input of theology and truth to the application thereof. So Romans chapter 1 through 11, just very, very, very sketchy overview, but it's, but it's, it's generally accurate. Paul's writing in the indicative. In other words, he's telling us what to believe. He's explaining to us God's plan of salvation. He's explaining to us the righteousness of God, that, that perfect blending of his justice and mercy through Christ. And he's, he's explaining that, and he's extrapolating truth out of that uh, on all kinds of different levels. So we're learning truth. We're gaining knowledge, which is absolutely crucial to the Christian life. The foundation of the Christian life is knowing and understanding the truth of Scripture. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul turns a corner and, and he stays on, generally speaking, on this side of the conversation for the rest of the book. And he begins to talk to us in terms of imperative. An imperative, strictly interpreted, would be a command. Uh, do this or don't do that. So it's, it's, what, uh, it's what theologians call the so what question. Now that I have this information, now that I'm in a relationship with Jesus, so what? What does that mean? You know, we just sang that song, take my hands, take my feet, take my money. And there might have been some of you going, oh, <laughs> hang on a second. I like my hands. <laughs> I got control of my money. Uh, what, what does my faith have to do with my bank account? And Paul says everything. Because there's a way to follow Christ. There's a life of discipleship that comes out of the truth that I've been writing to you about in these first 11 chapters. So we're going to get to the so what. In other words, wisdom is the application. I missed a couple words there. It should say wisdom is the application of knowledge. And so for the, for the, for the latter part of Romans, uh, in chapter 12, we're going to get into the application. And this morning we're going to, to make four observations uh, about Paul's comments on what it means uh, to foundationally understand the life of a disciple. So with that in mind, Romans chapter 12, just two verses this morning, plenty in these two verses, but hear the word of God. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning gathered as, as a group of folks who have uh, a variety of different uh, experiences in life. Uh, Lord, some of us are here this morning uh, vitally interested in discipleship and, and longing to know what it means to, to be in a real relationship with you through Christ. Father, some of us are, are giving that consideration. We're weighing it. We're thinking about it. Uh, we're, we're perhaps not convinced yet. Uh, and yet we are intrigued by the possibility that there is a God who truly would love us in such a magnificent way. And then, Lord, there may be a lot of us in between there. So, Lord, we, we come not to hear the words of man. My words are irrelevant. They are not important. They're just one person, one opinion. But Father, what we need is your eternal truth to speak into our lives. And whether we believe or don't believe this morning, all of us need that. Every one of us needs to know your truth. So, Father, I confess my sin to you, and I pray that you would uh, not allow me to stand in the way of what you want to share with us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would come and that you would indwell every heart and mind, and you would bring your truth to bear on our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, Paul gives us uh, a foundation in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 on how to apply the, the truth and the, and the wisdom that we've received so far uh, earlier in Romans. And I'm going to give you four observations on Paul's words, and they're all observations about the life of discipleship. And so that's kind of the header that, that's over the top. The first observation I, I want to give you is in the first half of the first verse, and, I, and I, my observation is life of discipleship must be lived in the proper context. A life of discipleship must be lived in a proper context. Paul starts out chapter 12 in this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, my wife, Cindy, has one sibling. She has a brother who is two years younger than her. Uh, He's a doctor, and he lives in Decatur, Alabama. Now, what if I told you that just over 10 years ago, his wife, Hope, almost died when she was about 40 years old? What if I went on to tell you that for an hour during that day where, his, where Alan's wife, Hope, almost died, for an hour he beat her on the chest? What would you think of him? Say so his wife is near death and he's beating her on the chest. That sounds like a monster, right? But what if I said to you, because he's a trained doctor, she had had a heart seizure, and what he was doing during that hour was CPR, and it literally saved her life. He goes from being a villain in your mind, perhaps, a person that would beat their wife is a villain. He goes from being a villain to being a hero, to being his savior, to be, being someone who, who cared for another person enough to, to do anything that he had to do in order to seek to rescue her. So friends, context is everything. Context is everything. And Paul comes to the Romans and he appeals to them. And what he says to them is, I want you to understand, brothers, that discipleship is only possible in the context 
of God's mercy to us through Christ. In other words, without the cross of Jesus, without that act of love that God gives to us sacrificially through Jesus, without that, what we're left with in discipleship is a God who demands an obedience that we can never deliver. It ends up being a discipleship that is reduced to a type of spiritual slavery. If you're here this morning because you think that this action of yours in coming to a worship service is pleasing to God, and therefore you get some, some brownie points, as we might say in, in, our, in our modern language, um, you get some points for being in good standing, and God's going to love you more. So that when you get to heaven and God says, should I let you in? You're like, well, I was in church every Sunday. I went and listened to that guy. It wasn't all that exciting. I really, you know, but I, I was there doing, doing the deal that I was supposed to do. If that's your view of discipleship, then you've reduced it to spiritual slavery. I have to perform in order to gain. And Paul says that's the wrong context. The context is in view of God's mercy. In other words, my discipleship and your discipleship is an act of response to a God who has given everything, sacrificed the life of his own son in order that we could experience forgiveness, that we could experience his grace. Now listen to what the theologian Edwards writes about this particular verse. He says, usually when Paul begins with the words, therefore I urge you, brothers, he asserts his apostolic authority as the basis for the appeal to follow. But here he appeals to a higher authority. The sacrifice of obedience is invoked not by Paul's authority, but by God's mercy. Remember, he says, in view of God's mercy. All ethical systems make some appeal to moral, moral, moral law and rules. Paul, however, makes no appeal to moral principles. He appeals solely to God's mercy. If Christian morality or Christian discipleship were simply a deterrence of divine wrath, it would not be morality at all. It would not be free. It would simply be some sort of moral ransom rooted in fear. If it were done in hopes of receiving something from God, then it would be manipulative or egocentric. True Christian ethics, on the other hand, are the ethics of gratitude. I love that. The ethics of gratitude. The obedience pleasing to God is characterized by free and willing submission because of God's prior sacrifice of his son on our behalf. Friends, we have to have the context of the cross. We have to understand that, that what flows out of our lives, what, what comes in discipleship is there because of what God has done first. And we understand that the life of discipleship must be lived in the context of the cross, in the context of God's mercy. The second observation I have is that the life of discipleship is rooted in self-sacrifice. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, sacrifice, I would, I would argue, is an all-or-nothing proposition. <laughs> the sacrifice uh, puts everything in. It's like the, the pig and the chicken we're talking about breakfast, and the pig says, well, you, you donate something, uh, but I'm all in, right? The eggs and bacon. The chicken just gives a little something, but the, the, the pig gives everything, right? And a sacrifice is, is given totally. In the Old Testament, and Paul's referring back with this, this language, a living sacrifice, this metaphor he's, he's painting for us, He's taking us back to the Old Testament, and he's reminding us that gifts that are given to God no longer belong to the giver. 
They are given as a gift of gratitude. And so when Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, he's saying the gift back to God, the, the, the gift of thanks for what God has done for, for, for us, it's our life. My life of discipleship is my, is, is my saying thank you to God. Lord, thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I'm going to give everything that I, that I know about myself to everything I know about you in order that I can, that I can express a thankful heart. Now, be careful here because when I say sacrifice is an all-or-nothing proposition, we could very easily slip into a type of perfectionism or a type of works-based salvation. Paul is not talking about earning our salvation. Paul is not talking about working to, to do that, which by God will then say, come on in, you've made it. Perfection is not the goal. Perfection is deadly. Rather, Paul is talking about a frame of mind. My thought goes something like this. I belong to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am holy, which is the word he uses here. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable are the two words he uses to describe this gift. Holy means set apart. It means set apart for something different. We're not going to use it for this common use over here. We're going to do this uh, with this something special, something set apart. So when I say I'm holy, I'm not telling you I'm a good person. I'm not telling you I don't ever blow it. I simply say I belong to Jesus. That's a little different than, than, than what other folks choose uh, that they're going to belong to. So Paul says we give this life of sacrifice holy. In other words, I belong to God through Jesus. And no decision that I make is void of his loving and gracious ownership in my life. That's the acceptable part. When I stop and go, wait a minute, I belong to Jesus. How do I treat my wife, Cindy? When I say, wait a minute, I, I, I'm a child of, of the king through the gift of the Lord Jesus. How do I manage my bank account? That's holy and acceptable. Because I'm taking into account first and foremost the fact that I am giving myself to God wholly and completely. A lot of you know that I, that I coach hockey. And one of the things we say to our kids from time to time is, the name on the front of the sweater, the name on the front of the jersey, which is the name of your team, your school, usually, um, uh, when the little youth kids play, you know, it says Kirk, when, here in Kirkwood, it says Kirkwood. Uh, I coach Kirkwood. I also coach Westminster. It says Westminster on the front. And we say to the kids, the name on the front of the sweater is more important than the name on the back. What are we saying? We're saying you're not, you're not your own anymore. You're, you're not an individual. You can't play for yourself. You can't go out and live any way you want to. You belong to a group. And you, this name says something about who you are. Um, this time, for this year, for the first year, I coached a girl on our high school team. And she, Jessica was one of our very best defensemen. She's really one of our best players. And early on in the season, I, I don't know, I don't think I've told you a story. Early on in the season, uh, we're playing in a practice game against, against DeSmet, and there's a guy on, on the other team that's just going at her. And just being, I mean, he's knocking her down, and he's just, and, you know, there's a lot of checking in hockey, but when the guys see they're playing against a young lady, they tend to be a little bit nicer as far as hockey players go. And this guy's just going after her. Towards the end of the game, they come together to the blue line, and they go down, and he tries to cross check her. And she rolls over, and she's on top, but she is just landing haymakers on top of this guy's head. And, uh, and, and, and they go in the penalty box, and she comes back to the bench a few minutes later. And, and I start into this, the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. You represent us. And I stopped and I said, Jess, what was that all about? And I heard something I've never heard on a hockey bench before. And I thought I had heard everything there is to hear on a hockey bench. And she said, 
he took one of my friends to prom last year, and he was such a jerk. <laughs> she actually didn't use the word jerk, but I, I added it for Sunday morning. And I said, Jess, you did the right thing. <laughs> you represented that name on the front well. We can't stand for jerks at prom. I'm sorry. We got to word draw on the line, right? But, but, but you get it. You understand what we're saying. This all or nothing approach says, I belong to Jesus. And the first name I think about when I make decisions isn't Tom Ricks. The first name I, I, I want to think about when, when I make a decision or a choice or words come out of my mouth or an action or thought crosses my lips or my mind is the Lord Jesus because I now belong to him. And that's a response of commitment. And that's why Paul says, present yourselves, your your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Which is your spiritual worship. You see, worship is not just what we do here on Sunday morning. You've heard that before if you've been at Green Tree for a while. But I honor God with my life. You honor God with your life when you leave this place And the first thought that crosses your mind in your decisions and your conversations and your actions and your attitudes is the Lord Jesus. That's worship. So when I go to work and and Jesus is Lord at work, I am worshiping Jesus. When Jesus is Lord over my money, when I open my checkbook, I am worshiping Jesus. I can worship Jesus with my sexuality. I can worship Jesus as a student. I can worship Jesus in my marriage, in my parenting. You can actually translate that word uh, spiritual worship. You can actually translate that out of the Greek as your rational service, the thing that makes sense, the obvious thing to do. So Paul says to us, we're living sacrifices. The life of discipleship is rooted in self-sacrifice, which is ultimately my act of worship. So Sunday is a culmination of worship. It's not a comprehensive act of worship. This is, I I want you to come on Sunday mornings. Scripture tells us to come together, but I want us all to understand that this is such a small, tiny part of our lives of worship because we give ourselves daily to the Lordship of Christ. Discipleship is rooted in self-sacrifice. My third observation is the life of discipleship is a metamorphosis of the mind. Look at verse 2, the very first part of it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Greek word there, be transformed, is literally the word from which we get the English metamorphosis. So I got a little picture here for you. We're going to go back to science class for for just a second. I I, I can't remember when you cover metamorphosis, but everybody remembers the caterpillar, and the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, and then what happens is you have a what? A butterfly, all right? Now, that caterpillar is always going to turn into that butterfly 100% of the time unless somebody knocks the cocoon off the branch or something bad happens, but he's always going to change, right? Technically, uh, the the technical um, uh, explanation of metamorphosis is a a process by which animals physically develop after birth or hatching involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt, abrupt change of body structure. When you come to Christ, there is an abrupt change in your heart. (laughs) Go and look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says you were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I don't know anything more abrupt than death or resurrection. (laughs) That is abrupt. 
That is a major shift, a major change. And what's happening in our lives, Paul says, because we are disciples of Jesus, is there's a transformation that is taking place. One of the only other places where this word for transformation is used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is transfigured. It's actually the same, the, the same root word, transformed. And you see, and, and, the, and the guys that were up there on the mountain, you know, Moses shows up and Elijah shows up, and they see Jesus in his glory. They see Jesus as he was meant to be, and they fall down and they worship him. There's, there's light around him. There's glory. There's majesty. There, there's beauty that they have never seen before. They can't even put it into words because they're now seeing Jesus for who he was meant to be. And Paul says, there's somebody you're meant to be, but sin has interrupted that process. There's someone you were created to be in the image of God in relationship with him that sin has, has, has wrinkled it and has, and has in many ways stained it and ruined it. But now that you've put your faith in Christ, the word of God and the Holy Spirit is indwelling your heart and that is a radical change. That's not something you manufacture. Absent God's work, that never happens. We might be pretty good people by the world standards, but we never live a true life of discipleship void of the transforming power of the gospel. And so Paul paints it in a negative and he paints it in a positive. He says, do not conform. In other words, what he's telling us to do is we have to unlearn some things in our lives. We have to unlearn a life that is based on the rejection of Jesus as Lord. You see, for every person that isn't a believer of Jesus, that isn't a disciple, they could look at Jesus and, and read the New Testament and go, he said some really cool things. You know, love your neighbors yourself. That's, you know, the world would be a better place if we all loved our neighbors ourselves. But they don't believe in him as Lord. They, ha- they are not disciples of Jesus. I, I, you may be here not a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to like you just as much. In fact, you're probably in many ways a lot better than, than people like me who claim to follow Jesus. But there isn't going to be a transforming work in your life, and the decisions you will make will all be based on you. They'll be based on what you want and what you think and what's best for you. That's how the world thinks. Not not trying to pick on folks. That's the reality of the situation. And Paul says what God wants you to do and what the work that he's doing in your heart, this transformation, is you got to unlearn some of that stuff. In order that that as God's presence is in your life, as, as you're being transformed, you welcome God's presence into your life and you allow him to be Lord and begin to change you from the inside out. The really good news here is is this verb transformed is in what we call the passive middle tense. Now, I know you're really excited to hear that. You should be thrilled. You should, right now, everybody should be jumping up and down. You don't have to, but you should be thrilled. The reason you should be excited about that is because what Paul is saying is that, in, in this tense of the verb he uses, is that I am making a choice to cooperate with God. That's my part. I'm making a choice to cooperate with God. I'm, I'm, I'm acting on something on behalf of myself. So you can be a Christian and be selfish. Isn't that cool? You can be selfish for the presence of God in your life. That's kind of John Piper's whole premise, if you've read his work, is be selfish to be, to be closer to God, Right? And so there's an unlearning, but then there's also an opportunity where I say, you know what I'm going to do for me? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to get as much of Jesus in my heart as I possibly can. You might say if you've been on a diet for a little while, you maybe you're trying to lose some weight. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give myself a dessert today. That's the kind of thing we say. Well, that's the tense that that Paul's using here. Give yourself a dessert. (laughs) 
allow your, allow, give yourself the lordship of Jesus. Let him come in and perform what only he can perform in order to change your heart. So we're sitting in the, in the kitchen at the office the other day, and there were about seven or eight staff members in there at lunchtime, and we're just chit-chatting. And one of the staff members says, you know, I've been on, on a, under a lot of stress lately. And she begins to talk about the stress that she's feeling and the different reasons she's feeling it. And I said, you know, I've kind of I've seen that. I've kind of just noticed in your body language, you know, you're just a little slumped. And, and it kind of telling you're stressed, you know, you just, you're not feeling really great. And, I, you know, I want to pray for you and all that. And uh, then the conversation goes on. I said, well, can you all ever tell when I get stressed? And they all kind of look down, <laughs> except for the one person that kind of will tell me the truth no matter what. The, the, there's one person on staff that isn't afraid of me, and I'm not going to tell you who that person is because then you'll go and tell her all the stuff to tell me. And now you know it's a, a woman. Um, so it's Mindy Owens. So Mindy looks at me. <laughs> Mindy looks at me, and she goes, when you get stressed, you get grumpy. You get grumpy. And I went, I do not. Take that back right now. I do not get grumpy. And I started thinking about it. And here I am, I, I've been a disciple of Jesus for, you know, 40 some odd years. And I still struggle with letting him be Lord. Because when you experience stress, a disciple says, Lord, you're in charge. I trust you. This stress is your stress. I'm handing it off. It's not that I'm not going to think about what I ought to be doing or pray about what the right solution to that situation might be. I'm not, t- I'm not saying I'm void of decision-making, but I take that and I put it at, at the Lord's feet. And I say, this is yours to deal with, Lord, and I want to follow you in my stress. But I don't do that. I get grumpy. And I'm starting to get old, so now I'm a grumpy old man, like the movie said. I need that change to take place in my life. I need to unlearn grumpiness. And I need to welcome the transforming power of the Lord Jesus A life of discipleship is a metamorphosis of the mind. And my fourth observation is this. A life of discipleship gives us a paradigm for our priorities. Look at the second half of verse chapter 2. Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by God doing that renewing work in your mind. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is Paul saying there? Saying this, as my reasoning, as my thinking process, as my mind is being changed, it's being transformed by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God, His plan becomes paramount in my life. I begin to ask the question, where is God going? What what is God doing and how can I join in? Whether it's, it's something internally in my life, like I just shared on working on my grumpiness, or whether it's something that's happening in, in Green Tree Community Church or the Kirkwood and Glendale area, or beyond that, in, in some, some way where I cross paths with the work of God, I can't wait to join in. Whether it's going down to Joplin or sitting and talking with somebody who's heartbroken over the loss of a, of a family member, or whether it's celebrating an accomplishment with a fellow believer, whatever the case may be, where's God going? What's he doing? And how do I get to be part of it? I don't want to be left out. There's a movie that's only a marginal movie. I I wouldn't spend a lot. You might want to watch it. So if you see it on TV one night, you got nothing to do. You can watch it. It's called Behind Enemy Lines. And Owen Wilson plays a fighter pilot that is flying a mission over Serbia during peacekeeping time, and he gets shot down, and he's behind enemy lines. And he's trapped back there. And, And the aircraft carrier right off the coast, has some Marines on it, and the captain's going to send the Marines in to go rescue this, this fighter pilot. But he says to them before they all get on the helicopter, he says, now, men, I want you to understand, I am purposely going to put you in harm's way. 
we might not all come back from this mission of trying to save this captain. If anybody doesn't want to go, step back right now. There's no shame in not going, but I want you to know it will be dangerous. How many guys step back? Not one. They all jump on the helicopter, right? And they all go to the rescue. They all want to be part of the group that is going to save the guy behind enemy lines. And that's the life of discipleship. God says, I'm all about saving a lost and broken world. And as my mind is transformed, as this metamorphosis takes place, and now my paradigm from priorities has shifted from it's all about me to it's all about God's mission in this world, I'm like, where do we go? What do you want us to do? How do we figure this out? Tell us, Lord, let us go along with you. I want to follow. I want to be in. And as I follow by faith, what happens? As I'm testing and my mind is being renewed, then I'm discerning God's will. It becomes clear where he's going and where he's working. It's becoming clear the gifts that he's given me and how they tie in to the greater purposes of the kingdom of God. It becomes clear the role I'm to play in my family, the, 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 the way in which I'm supposed to relate to my wife and my marriage. Those things begin to become clear. Why? Because I'm beginning to see the will of God clear because he is living within me. And so what happens is I learn what is good and acceptable and perfect to God. I want to come back to Edwards for just a second because I think he sums this up really well in a short paragraph. He says, if Christian conduct were simply adhering to a legal code, or a moral principle, then there would be no need to test and approve God's will. But Christian conduct grows only from discipleship, and discipleship from learning and following Christ. The renewed mind is thus the discipled mind. And the discipled mind must be a discerning mind which approves what is good, pleasing, and perfect. The will of God is good because it's morally right. It is pleasing because it is acceptable and agreeable to his character, and it is perfect because it promotes his saving will for humanity. Does that describe my life? Does that describe your life? Can we go to that that chart for just a second? As I look at that, I I would say the answer to that question just for Tom Ricks is yes and not yet. I I think at 53 years old, I'm probably a little better of a pastor than I was when I was 34 years old. I think if someone came into my office with a similar type of crisis to the one I experienced when I was 34, it would still be unnerving. (laughs) You know, when people look at you and go, you're the pastor, so you know it, right? (laughs) Trust me, that's a very unsettling place to be. But I've lived about 20 more years with Jesus. And and I've been through some deep waters with a lot of you guys in in this room. And I have a little bit different perspective. I'm a little further down the road of knowing how to be a pastor. And I think that's true of discipleship as well. Does this describe my life? I would say yes. If I come to God through faith in Jesus alone, that process has begun. And I'm growing in that. I've begun to be a living sacrifice. But I would also say absolutely not yet. It's not done by any stretch of the imagination. And that's why the title of the sermon is Being and Becoming. We have to be careful to understand, uh, lest we slip into a man-centered perfectionism, that discipleship is about God changing us, and that is a process. That is a journey. Who I am becoming, hopefully more and more, as God changes me from the inside out. 
is one who reflects more and more the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And that's God's intended pathway for our lives. And that's why chapter 12 turns a corner. And Paul is going to spend the rest of the book telling us what it means to follow Christ as a disciple. So in closing, remember, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray.